As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today to answer some USMNT and MLS-centric listener questions, including Frankenstein's monster as a USMNT player, MLS players heading to Qatar, new stats the world needs to track. To answer those, we've got so many questions. We've got two fine folks who I'm going to introduce uh, by asking them some very easy introductory questions. Uh, here to answer the age-old question, if you were a hot dog and you were starving, would you eat yourself? Is Graham Ruff? And Graham, it's a simple question. If you were a hot dog and you were starving, would you eat yourself? What's, what's on the hot dog? It's up to you. It's up, I leave it to your discretion. It's a very important question to each their own. Okay, so I like onions and mustard mm-hmm. on my on my hot dog. Sometimes mm-hmm. ketchup. If if those are the toppings, then yes, I would eat myself. Is this an I SNL see. reference of some kind? It is indeed. So we're adding the ingredients. See, Graham, this is crafty. You're adding the ingredients so you don't actually have to eat yourself. Well done. That's a satisfactory <laughs> answer. Joe, let's see if you can keep it going. Joe, another obvious one to start off. We all know the moon is not made of green cheese, but if it were made of barbecue spare ribs, would you eat it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I would not eat it if it was made of cheese, most likely. I'm not a big cheese guy. I like yep. it on things, but not not really on it by itself or anything yeah. like that. But barbecue ribs? Are you kidding me? Absolutely, Taylor. Joe, well, that is also it, a correct answer. <laughs> two two answers so far to start the show. Good, jo- good job, boys. Good job. What, what if it was buffalo sauce, Joe? No. No. Am I starving in this instance or not? If, uh, I, if I'm not yes. starving? Okay, if I'm not starving, I'm not eating it. If I'm starving, yeah, I'll, I'll probably eat it because I, I know it's edible and I would not be dead at that point. Joe, Joe, I imagine your disappointment of starving floating all the way up to the moon to find out that it's actually it's barbecue sauce. sauce. That'd be, that'd be, that'd be a, oh, excuse me, buffalo sauce. Barbecue sauce, I'm assuming, would be okay. I love barbecue sauce. Like, I, I, I'm not <laughs> proud go. of this, but if I'm eating something with barbecue sauce, just, you know, bottled, prepackaged barbecue sauce, and there's some left over on my plate, I'm definitely licking that. There that's just the truth. That, that's barbecue just sauce is, see, barbecue sauce is not my thing at all. Uh-oh. I think I've told you this story before because I once ordered a barbecue chicken pizza thinking it would just be the, the chicken that was marinated mm-hmm. in the oh, barbecue sauce, yeah. but it was it was the tomato base had been replaced with a barbecue sauce base, and yeah, that ruined that ruined barbecue sauce for me forever. <laughs> I was about ten years old when that happens, and I still haven't got over it. You'd been it's bamboozled. Not, 
it's not like so bad necessarily, but it's when you're expecting it to be tomato exactly. sauce and then it's barbecue sauce. That's really the one that pushes it into uh, fully terrible. But Graham, I'm so sorry for your pain. If it helps, you both answered correctly, which means yes. the show can continue. So well done to you all. Well done to Will Ferrell's Harry Carey for those two excellent <laughs> questions. Let's get to some more, slightly more logical questions. Uh, we've got three about the USMNT. We've got slightly. three about MLS. <laughs> yeah, are one, they more logical? Stats. <laughs> I mean, I, I just wanted to like make sure that I, I cushioned that one a little bit because I was about to say, let's get to some more obvious questions. Starting with Anthony Valdivia, if you could combine two USMNT players into one, who would you choose, why, yes. and where would you play them? So yes, slightly more logical than if the moon were made of barbecue spare ribs, would you eat it? Joe, if you can combine two USMNT players into one, who would you choose, why, and where would you play them? Asks Anthony. Anthony, we love this question. It is beautifully nonsensical. The others are, are a lot more logical, but that, just because it's not logical doesn't mean we don't like it. So I, I fell in love with this question. I thought about it over the course of several days and actually just thought about my answer when I woke up this morning. Like it just, it just came to me and appeared in my head and I'm thankful for that. So my answer to this question, and I have others as well, but my main answer is I'm combining Jedi Robinson and Gio Reyna and I'm playing them as a winger. So here's my, here's my reasoning. Giorena is a pretty athletic dude. Uh, he needs some hamstrings, but beyond that, he's strong. He's, he's pretty quick in tight spaces, but he's not straight line elite level fast. And I, I think Jedi Robinson probably is that, at least in the U.S. men's national team player pool. So if we could combine all the things that Giorena does really well, he's good in 1v1 duels. He's strong in those spaces. He's very technical. He's dangerous in the final third. He's dangerous progressing the ball on the half turn between the lines. If you combine that with just elite speed, I think this Frankenstein, Geo Robinson, Jedi Reina, I don't know what it's going to be. That player becomes one of the best wingers in the world almost immediately. Guys, what do we think? Is that is that a good choice here? I like I mean, the logic, I'm... yeah. I think <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. So let's yeah. make it happen. That's that's what this process is all about, right? We're actually going to do this. You can be in charge of the of the Frankensteining. Well, Taylor okay. and I will do the do the combinations, and you can actually do the science. Okay, yeah, Grant, that's what we job. brought you on board for. Rad- <laughs> radical experimental science. That was on your CV, no? Yeah. I mean, this is the easy bit, of course. You guys have done the hard work for me. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Uh, and, and sorry, and you're playing them as a winger, uh, Joe. Are they, is, is the Jedi Geo the Jejio? Uh, is oh. he replacing uh, Geo as our starting <laughs> winger? I, ideally, they'll just be another player because I would still like to keep Jedi Robinson at left back and I'd still like to keep Gio Reyna on, on one of the wings. And now this player is just opposite the original Gio Reyna. If, if Graham, if we can still get the originals out of the experiment, I don't, again, that's more. Oh, I'm so confused now. So we're having two players. They're just, we're combining two different halves of them and, and still having two players. Well, this, I don't, this I don't want to like get rid of my starting left back though, you know? So it's, this is a difficult one. It really is tricky. <laughs> Joe, I'm only giving you 80% correct for that one. So you've got 1.8 points so far. Graham, uh, to you, let's see if you can get the full one point. Okay, so at the risk of upsetting, upsetting Taylor about one of his favorites and simultaneously upsetting Joe about Negative one of his before favorites. before you start talking. Negative five points. All right, let's see if you can make it up. I'm going to combine Tyler Adams oh, and boy. Eunice Musa. So... Oh. Adams is brilliant at what he does, but I think the truly world-class players in his position have a bit more in terms of their their ability to drive the ball forward. I hate to use this example because everyone uses this example, but let's look at N'Golo Kante. Yes, he's excellent at covering a lot of ground and providing protection and breaking up opposition moves, but Thomas Tuchel has also recognised how useful he can be in carrying the ball forward. And for the USMNT right now, it seems like they have 
two players to perform this one role uh, where Adams is maybe the protection and the anchor and then they have Musa to pro- provide a lot of energy and dribbling and, and moving forward. So if you could combine them in the way that kind of can- N'Golo Kante is, then all of a sudden you have another spot in the midfield for someone like, well, I was going to say someone like Gio Reyna, but all of a sudden that's now Jedi <laughs> Reyna or Anthony. Jejio. Yeah, Jejio, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, whether it's uh, the Frankenstein's monster Gio Reyna or the actual Gio Reyna, we could bring him into the midfield and then to draw the Chelsea comparison again, all of a sudden he's the USMNT's uh, Mason Mount figure with uh, uh, an Adams and Musa hybrid behind him so that was my suggestion not that Adams and Musa are bad players but I think combining them would really take them into that elite level Graham you had earned a full six points back to give you the one point but then yes. at the end you sort of compared Tyler Adams to Mason Mount so you get point two off so you both are tied with no one I would point say Gio Reyna to Mason Mount Gio Reyna and this hybrid system with the uh, Adams and Musa combined Gio oh, Reyna yeah. would Taylor, be the Taylor, Mason Taylor, Mount Taylor it sounds like Graham was asking for you to take more points off for complaining <laughs> and I should clarify I think he You'd is be quiet, and I should clarify <laughs> not talking about his technical ability Mason Mount an excellent player just you know Come on. Mason Mount just seems like he would be a frustrating player. I guess if you want him on your team, maybe that's good. He's the, he seems like a definitive, you want him on your team, you don't want to play against him type of guy, which maybe is a positive. Either way, I'm saying you all are tied for points. I'm a little bit annoyed with myself for not thinking about the portmanteau aspect of this, because really, we could have come up with some great players, and that would have been my sole motivation. Joe, we talked about this a little bit before recording, because I was trying to think of a defender who can also pass the ball. Uh, you uh, gave me the idea of John Brooks, so I am combining John Brooks with Paul Areola to create uh, John Paul Broliola. Uh, <laughs> so we will have a a hard-running engine in the midfield who can also play defense and pass the ball. Unfortunately, I am melding them ha- half and half, so we're getting like the left side of Paul Areola, or the left side of John Brooks and the right side of Paul Areola, since John Brooks is left-footed. So it's going to be awkward, because I think there's a height difference, and there is. I'm not quite <laughs> sure how we're going to balance that one out. Maybe, I don't know if that's beyond... It's, that's going to be like a hybrid chiropractor sorcerer sort of situation. But either way, we're going to make it work for for John Paul Broliola. That's a good one, Taylor. I really I really like the idea of combining John Brooks with other people mm-hmm. because of that passing range. So I also, yeah. Graham, use Tyler Adams in one of my experiments here. John Brooks and Tyler Adams, you get the passing and the athleticism. I think that would make a really good number six or a really good center back. And I think the U.S. could use that combination of traits in both of those spots. That was one of the other combos that I had. And then my last one is a, is yet another Tyler Adams combination, but you could combine Weston McKenney instead. I don't, I don't really know how you want to do this, but I'm, I'm molding Alex Mendez or Richie Ledesma with either Adams or McKenney. I want a really athletic half here. And I also want the really technical quality. And McKenney already has some of that on his own. And I, I don't think I'd use either one of these players if it meant we couldn't keep the originals in the lineup, but basically getting a more technical presence as one of those number eights and also keeping some of the athleticism that the U.S. has and that Greg Berhalter clearly prioritizes, I think that's the perfect player. It's just the case that that perfect player isn't in the U.S. pool right so, now. It might be Gio Reyna, but I'm, I'm not sure. So, Joe, were you combining like four players there? How many players was, was that? It's, it's this- either Mendez or Ledesma with either Adams ah, or McKinney. Right, okay. it's, it's, it's simple. It's an or situation. It. Yeah. I thought we had a USMNT human centipede on the go here. Yeah, right. Is, that is actually might be the answer. Yeah. They just keep absorbing other other components and they become one gigantic player. I'm into that one. It's beautiful. Uh, 
my other one, just as a as an actual problem solving approach, would be to com- combine all of John Brooks with uh, Sasha Kleshton's mustache, and then we could just have like Tom Brooks and see if Greg Berhalter notices <laughs> that it's actually John Brooks. That might be a way to sneak him into the roster without having to kind of go back on some things that have happened. Instead, we can just sneak in Tom Brooks, and we'll all be fine. Oh. Oh wow! I mean, we don't have to combine Sasha Kleshin. We could just take his mustache. We could just try and persuade him. Like, we, we need this for Qatar. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just pin him nas- down for national security. Give us your mustache. Perfect. <laughs> um, I also don't know if he still has that one, so he's got to grow it first. But I think we can yeah. make it work. Then we'll take Tom Bogert's <laughs> when he has his. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, any other players to combine before we move on to a slightly more serious question? I mean, the the boring answer to this and the correct answer potentially is Zach Steffen and Matt Turner, right? <laughs> Imagine we could just eliminate that whole discussion by merging the two of them. That would save us a lot of stress. But then, see, Graham, I just can't let this go. Are we even sure that Zach Steffen is that good with his feet to begin with? I'm not sure that... I'm not sure that solves us don't, any problems, but it, it would quiet down Twitter if that's the goal here. Yeah, don't add logic be. to this discussion, Joe. You're this right. is uh, purely theoretical and hypothetical. We never have to find out, so we can always just be correct by saying, let's combine them. I have made an error. Taylor, I will subtract a point from my own score. <laughs> I think that puts you at 0.8 points on the whole. Yeah. Uh, Graham trying to combine gives him another half point, so it's now 0.8 to 2.3. This scoring <laughs> makes total sense. Mark Bujarski with the next question for Graham and then Joe. Uh, with the dearth of striker options for the USMNT, why are we not looking at guys like Christian Ramirez and Jeremy Abobasi who are scoring? I know people will say the level is lower in Scotland, but is it that much lower than Switzerland? Who are the other options or who are the options that haven't been given a shot in this post-Altador era? Graham, we've talked about roughly 4,000 strikers on this show who could yeah. play for the U.S. Are there any that we have not yet discussed? I suppose we haven't spent a ton of time with Christian Ramirez. Yeah, Ramirez, I, I think he's maybe at the top of the list, along with, I guess, uh, Abobsi, who haven't really been given a shot. His last cap, talking about Ramirez, actually, it's the same for Abobasi. They're Both their, their last caps were in 2019. But if you go through the list of strikers that have been tried and have been given a cap, you know, Pepe, Ferreira, P. Fox, Sargent, uh, Giacchini, DK, Zardes, Sebastian Soto, Ma- uh, Matthew Hoppe. By the way, Sebastian Soto is a really confusing one for me because he's in, he's in Scotland at the moment and um, I'm not overly impressed with him. Yeah. So that's a surprising one to me. But anyway, I, I don't think there are many strikers, standout strikers anyway, that haven't been given a cap we were talking about this before we we started recording joe you you put forward Haji right i guess that's a, a fair one we analyzed him a couple of weeks ago but it doesn't feel like there is recently with the, the the latest um international window i was quite strong in saying i thought jordan p fox should be in that roster but he'd already been given a chance it wasn't necessarily it hadn't he hadn't been given a chance in fact he'd played poorly for the, the u.s before so it was understandable that he had kind of dropped down the depth chart it was just he was in such good form form for young boys that i felt he needed to be back in that roster and of course he was he was he was given a chance so i, I don't really feel like there is anyone that has been overlooked joe do you think otherwise not not really Baralter and graham you you pointed this out well he's been down to try stuff right he's given a bunch of players their first cap a bunch of nines their first cap and he's run out some other players that were involved in the picture before he took the job. Josh Sargent, Jossie Zardes being two of those primary guys that he continued to give reps to. So he's clearly been down to try stuff. I think, I think part of the reason why Ramirez and Abobasi to, to highlight those guys that Mark highlights, I think the reason why those players haven't really been involved recently is because Baralter had, had tried a, a bunch of players already, eight, nine, ten players already. 
And by the time World Cup qualifying goes around, at a certain point, you have to start valuing continuity, right? That that becomes important. And Berhalter talked about that while referencing why he didn't bring Joe Scally in. And I, I do think maybe that's a little bit of flawed reasoning because maybe he should have brought in Joe Scally in before that. But then we watched him and all, and he, he isn't looking that good in Germany anyway. But I set that aside to say I think there's a reason why we saw Jesus Ferreira and Ricardo Pepe kind of become the go-to guys as World Cup qualifying progressed. So I think that was understandable from a coaching standpoint. But I, I also wouldn't mind seeing Christian Ramirez or Jeremy Abobasi or Brandon Vasquez or Haji Wright in, in June, somebody in June. It seems like the pool is extremely wide and very shallow right now in, in the nine spot. There's a lot of players who are kind of just all in one giant cluster. They're in one giant group. And I'm not sure there's a whole bunch other than maybe the players that Mark mentioned and, and Vasquez yeah. and, and Wright that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That belong in this conversation. I'm not sure any of these guys is really going to, are really going to be a difference maker. And and the other thing to say is, I would be surprised if players like Ramirez and Abobasi aren't being looked at by Berhalter and his staff. They'll be monitoring Agreed. every USMNT eligible player, and those players will have been assessed. I would have to imagine. And in terms of Ramirez, who I've watched a lot of this season, and I've I've liked a lot of what I've seen from him in Scotland. But I don't think he's a very good fit for what Berhalter wants from his number nine. He is a poacher and a good one at that. And I have argued in the past that the USMNT needs variety in their options. And I still stand by that. But he's he's not... Uh, the discussion around the number nine at the moment is the US needs to find their number nine for the next 10 years. And I, don't, I just don't think Ramirez is that player. And to address a different part of the question, another part of Mark's question, in terms of the level, I just think it's so difficult to assess where Scottish football is in, in regards to other leagues. And I'm going to use MLS as a gauge because of Obasi's mentioned in this question. And also, uh, you know, there's a lot of MLS players within the, the USMNT squad. But I think in Scotland you have two dominant teams in Celtic and Rangers, and in my opinion, both of them would be in the in the equation for the best team in MLS. You know, Rangers are a, are a Europa League semi-final team this season, and Celtic are winning the league. But below that, it's much t- tougher to make an assessment. MLS squads have such variance because of the trade rules and salary cap rules. So the best player for the worst team, let me try and get this right in my head, the best player for the worst team in MLS is better than the best player for the worst team in the Scottish Premiership. But then I also think MLS teams have a lower level among their worst players. It's like MLS both has a higher level and a lower level at the same time. And that's why I partly struggle to compare the Scottish Premiership with MLS. And and I just think the best way in a general sense is to assess players on a case-by-case basis. There's just too many circumstances for each individual player to make sweeping generalizations. Again, to draw the MLS Scottish Premiership comparison, Chris Muir, for example, is a USMNT cap and he's been dreadful for Hibs this season. He's going back to MLS, I think, after six yep. months. James Sands has struggled for, for Rangers. Christian Ramirez, Ramirez, on the other hand, has been very good. And going the other hand, Lewis Morgan, who wasn't very good here, has been good in MLS. But Gary Mackay-Steven, who was good in Scotland, has been bad in MLS. And then Patrick Kamala, who was laughably <laughs> bad at Celtic, has been decent in MLS. There's just The point I'm making is there's no hard rule. Oh. Like there's no This player was poor in Scotland, so he's going to succeed in MLS or the other way around. So you just have to assess players case by case in my opinion Graham I don't know why I just love that so much you going back and forth that was just it was beautiful to me anyway sorry Taylor you should no, talk you're now. good man I agree <laughs> and I and I agree with Graham that I think like we shouldn't paint too broadly with a brush uh, we shouldn't like like avoid dealing with these players on a case by case basis we should look at them like where they're fitting in what their skill set is being utilized or how it's being utilized but that does beg the question I had this conversation with a buddy of mine Joe Like when you have so many different number nines and you could make the argument that there's just every single option there is maybe not 
yet ready for prime time or needs to develop in one area or a couple different areas. But you could also make the argument, if you wanted to, from a different perspective, that maybe Greg Berhalter is asking too much of that role, that he's asking them to do too much. And maybe that requires a very veteran, very established player to be able to handle all that pressure. Do you think there's any credence to that? Or do you think one player could pull that role off just with a few more reps and a little bit more experience? I totally think one player could pull that role off. I just don't know if the U.S. has that player right now. For me, Jesus Ferreira is probably the most promising one, and he does that in a, in a unique way relative to the other nines in the pool. Maybe there's somebody else that, that does it in a different way that can still get the job done. It's not like a super complicated thing that Berhalter is asking from that player. Depending on, on the player's profile, he'll have them drop in and try to link some play, or maybe they'll stay higher and, and contribute to hold-up play. Then they have to press, and then they have to be dangerous in the box. Those are pretty basic responsibilities for a number nine it's just that right now, at least we haven't seen it before. We haven't seen the U.S. have a, an international quality goal scoring number nine. So I, I don't think the situation is that complicated for me. It, it feels like a lot of the options that have been tried either aren't there yet in their young careers, maybe will never be there, or just maybe aren't good enough for that job. Now, I will say, Taylor, maybe this is more in the spirit of your question. I do think it it might have been worthwhile or maybe still will be worthwhile, but I'm skeptical of this to try something different in that role. Not like a different player, although we might see that, and I'm not against that, but a different positional alignment, maybe. Maybe it's a two-forward front. Not all the time, but maybe there's a, a different shape. Instead of seeing that sort of 2-3-5 shape in possession with the, the two center backs as the two, then the, the central midfielders as that group of three, and then the fullbacks pushing forward along with the two wingers and the striker to make that line of five, maybe it's it's something different like what Canada uses sometimes in the two-forward front. And it's not... Like you're playing two number nines together and you're losing a body from another quality position, but maybe you're pushing Gio Reyna or Christian Pulisic inside and maybe for some reason that works. Maybe you're pushing Weston McKinney forward and you're getting weird with it, right? Maybe you're doing something different and, and Berhalter just hasn't really ever tried that outside of one gold cup game. I think against Canada when Zardes and DK started together and it looked terrible. That's the only time really where we've seen something like that. It might have been worth in the past, and again, it might still be worth doing something different to see if that sparks something in this group of number nines, but I'm not sure that that's going to do it either. All right. Well, we shall take a break. I'm going to consider that one asked and very much answered. We'll be back with some more questions in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. We've got another USMNT question for you. This one a bit trickier. It comes from Nick Gillick. Nick asks or says, given the announcements of upcoming USMNT match locations, I noticed the press releases for Cincinnati, Austin, and Kansas City, which is Nick City, all mentioned the benefit of outstanding facilities. Cincinnati and Austin have stadiums in their infancy, and Kansas City has the National Training and Coaching Development Center. What 
are elements that would set facilities like these apart from the countless other places in the U.S. that I'm sure would love to host the national team. So let's break this question down a little bit because I think there's uh, a, a debate or a conversation to be had around the facilities themselves and what sets them apart. But I think also mm-hmm. there's a conversation to be had about the host cities themselves. Because I, I do think, as we've seen in this World Cup qualifying cycle and in past World Cup qualifying cycles, there is, when you're looking at where to host games, uh, an idea that you want to have a host atmosphere. And if you're playing Mexico in LA or Mexico in Texas or Mexico in most locations in the United States, you are not guaranteed to have that home atmosphere that happened uh, at Red Bull Arena in 2017 during World Cup qualifying. And I think U.S. soccer, rightly or wrongly, is always going to have an eye on how do we create a home atmosphere. And sometimes the optics and way of explaining that are very poor. Other times, I think Greg Berhalter talked about it this cycle as basically we want to create an intimidating atmosphere. We want people to come in. We want it to be loud. We want it to be passionate. I would argue that the most passion I felt personally was in Florida, in Orlando for the Panama game. That crowd was up for it. It was a raucous atmosphere. And I do think ultimately that's what they want. They want a very good atmosphere uh, with a with a passionate crowd and enthusiastic crowd that's going to help pick the team up and so any places that they feel they can more guarantee a positive home crowd they are going to uh to look upon them favorably so that's the start of maybe an answer for this one graham how would you like to go with this one yeah so there are a number of things that u.s soccer looks for in terms of a venue and i wrote a piece on stadium construction and design in mls a number of years ago and i spoke to populace who designed a number of stadiums in america and throughout the world i think they designed the, the new tottenham hotspur stadium i think they've recently been appointed by Manchester United to look into the expansion of their stadium. So they are very much an authority on this subject. And I also spoke to Sporting KC, who told me what it was that US soccer likes about the the, the coaching development centre and also the, the stadium that they have there that the, the national team has obviously used a number of times. So some of the things, I went back and looked through this article, and some of the things were... For the players, they like to have large dressing rooms with video presentation technology so coaches can communicate ideas and plans. They like to have separate locker room and preparation slash recovery areas so the players feel like they almost have a almost like a lounge area where there's not a great deal of preparation happening. That would be the locker room and then they go to a separate area for any preparation, which would be physio or hydro baths or anything like that. They like to have that divide. They like to have um, easy access to the, the player and locker room areas from the team bus. Um, and they want to have kitchen facilities on site so players can have the option to eat before and after a game, although it is common for US soccer to have their meals at the the hotel, but Sporting KC told me that US Soccer likes to have that option. Um, a couple other things, they want to have the locker room area to be connected to the rest of the, of the facilities, so players and staff don't have to go trekking through the stadium to get places. So an example of somewhere that I've been that's not like that is Providence Park, which the locker rooms aren't in the main stand in Portland. So maybe US Soccer would look a little, uh, look down on that slightly. And then as you say, Taylor, there's, there's considerations made for atmosphere and likelihood that stadium will be a sellout and all those things. But in terms of the actual facilities, those were the things that were mentioned to me as putting one stadium above another one. Graham, 
uh, plus point seven points for an excellent answer that gives you three, and then an additional point for uh, helping me remember the scene in Spinal Tap where the band is going out for their show and they keep not knowing how to get to the stage because <laughs> the backstage area is so convoluted. I'm assuming that's what U.S. Soccer is trying to avoid, that uh, kickoff has to be delayed 15 minutes later than it was already going to be delayed uh, because we're not quite sure where the U.S. has gone. They're wandering through the tunnels trying to find the ground. I guess we should probably avoid that if we can. Yeah, I mean, that is what would happen if they played any games at Providence Park. The <laughs> match would be delayed because Tim Weah has got lost. Graham, that's um, that's really, really interesting, though. I didn't really realize how much, like, not, like I, that. a lot of that is obvious, but it still makes a ton of sense that you would want all of those things in place just because you, then you don't have to think about it. You don't have to improvise. We don't have video screens. How are we going to make this work? It's just the less stuff that you have to worry about uh, before, during, and after a game, I'm assuming the better, especially if you've then got to hop on a plane and get to your next spot. So uh, some great answers there. Joe, uh, anything, anything to add on this one? The only thing that I'll add is I, I think I put a lot of stock, Taylor, in the bit of your answer that you gave at the mm-hmm. beginning about U.S. soccer being very careful with where they stage games based off of demographics. And this this combines with Graham's thoughts as well on these stadiums. There are a lot of really nice new soccer-specific stadiums or, or just really nice ones, even if they're not new, in the middle strip of the country, which is where the U.S. played every single World Cup home World Cup qualifier this cycle, except one. And that was the final one in Orlando that you mentioned, Taylor. There are also really nice soccer-specific stadiums, not as many, and and maybe not as new, but there are at least a couple new-ish ones on the coasts as well. And that's Bank of California Stadium in LA, that LAC play at, and then Exploria Stadium in Orlando, which the U.S. has used plenty before. I I do think it is a combination of the factors that you guys mentioned. If the U.S. wanted to be playing games in LA and they wanted to be playing more games on the coast— They could, right? They could find the facilities and they could find the resources to do that, whether they would have to make slight adaptations or whether they could just use stadiums that are already at those criteria that Graham mentioned. They could do that. But, I mean, they're playing Morocco in Cincinnati on June 1st. They're playing Uruguay in Kansas City on June 5th. And they're playing Granada in Austin on June 10th. All of those cities have had U.S. men's national team games sometime between last summer and and this summer, in the last calendar year, basically. It's not a surprise, and at this point, I think it's pretty clear where U.S. soccer wants to be playing those games. Yeah. The solution, the solution to all this is build a national stadium in Richmond. I'm just uh, suggesting down. that 100, 100 down for that, uh, and <laughs> and uh, that would be lovely. But it would also, I think, it would make sense to have it on the East Coast, though. You know, then then you're getting the uh, East Coast elite, <clears throat> the liberal elite, or whatever. Uh, but there <laughs> the were times, <laughs> I think, when uh, in Richmond, Virginia, obviously. Uh, <laughs> There were times, though, when if the U.S. was calling in a predominantly European-based team, they would try to play games on the East Coast. So then you were kind of cutting down on travel time versus when they had a predominantly MLS-based side, you would get them training in Carson, for example, in California. So there is maybe a little bit of that consideration with travel times. I think the other thing that we've all sort of landed upon in various ways is just the idea that U.S. soccer wants to win games, obviously, but they're also, lest we forget, the organization tasked with developing soccer in this country. And so they want the teams to win. They want the teams to look productive because then they're doing their job. But they also want to show that soccer is growing and that interest in soccer is growing. And there are enthusiastic supporters everywhere. And so part of it, I think, is that you're able to list Cincinnati, Austin, and Kansas City as having these outstanding facilities that are developing things like the National Training and Coaching Development Center that we wouldn't otherwise be talking about. And it's a way to kind of demonstrate the growth of the game in this country because now you think of Cincinnati, Austin, and Kansas City and like, oh yeah, they've got really good soccer infrastructure. They're really good soccer towns. I think it's all part and parcel of 
growing the game. But I think with that, the kind of like like the negative partner, if you will, is the idea that if you are trying to show the growth of the game and people tune in to see a stadium that is maybe a third full of U.S. fans and two thirds full of Costa Rica or El Tri fans, that doesn't look as good and the optics aren't as strong. And so I do think that there are calculated ways U.S. soccer goes about deciding on locations and then making sure that they are uh, well attended by U.S. supporters. And again, that's a conversation that we can have at some point if we want to about should they be doing that. But I think that is uh, at least some of the reason why they do some of that. Anything else to add about USMNT match locations, gentlemen? I'll just retweet that last bit that you said. Retweet. It's been retweeted. And you know what, Joe? That's two points for you yes! for the retweet. Yes. Let's go. You, you never know where the points are going to pop up. Sorry, Graham. Retweet faster next time. Uh, Joe, this one's <laughs> I, coming to I'll you try. from Rob Ledford. How many MLS players do you think will make 2022 World Cup rosters? And how many countries will that represent? Where do you think that will rank versus other leagues? And why will the uh, MLS be superior to Scotland? Ah, yes. Well, they, they probably will have more players no than Scotland. Yeah, it's not not incredibly difficult for the World Cup. Rob, you you uh, added some very interesting research to my afternoon mm. yesterday, and I, right? I do really mean that. This was right? fascinating, I think, to dive into and comparing this World Cup to the last one. So I'll just get the, the main answer out of the way very quickly. I counted around 40 probable or potential or likely MLS players on World Cup rosters across 11 teams. So I counted at least one player in every single World Cup group. Now, there is an asterisk here because we don't know what the final groups are. Quite simply, Group D could have Peru in it, or it could have the UAE, or it could have Australia in it. If it's Peru, I think there'll be probably four MLS players on their squad in Pedro Caese, Cayens, uh, Flores, Edson Flores for DC United, and Marcos Lopez, who's a left back and plays for San Jose. Those guys have all been involved for Peru plenty over the last uh, over this past World Cup qualifying cycle. Group E could have Costa Rica in it, most likely, or they could have New Zealand in it. Potentially, if it's Costa Rica, you're you're probably looking at at least two, if not more, players from MLS in that World Cup qualifying squad. So we don't have the full answer, but I think anywhere from upper 30s to 40, 41, 42, 43, 44 is probably the right range across nine to 11 countries, which is pretty legit when you stack it up against what other leagues had at the last World Cup. So MLS in in 2018 had 19 players at the World Cup across six different national teams. So 40-ish across 11 this time around versus 19-ish, oh, not not ish, 19 across six national teams. Other leagues back in 2018, the Premier League had 108 players. La Liga had 78. The Bundesliga had 62. Serie A had 58. And Ligue 1 had 47. So those were the top five from the top five leagues. It makes sense. Then you had Russia with 36, the Russian Premier League. Uh, the Saudi Professional League had 30. And in the Turkish Super League had 22. Those leagues are, are at least Russia and Saudi Arabia pretty heavily influenced by the attendance of their national teams in tournaments like this. So MLS is similarly influenced by U.S. and uh, by the United States and Canada being at this World Cup and they weren't at the last World Cup. Canada, I think, might actually be the team that ends up with the most players at this World Cup from Major League Soccer. The U.S. is going to be second or it could be flipped. But either way, those are the top two. But still, guys, that's that's a lot more players, even even when you factor the spread and the diversity of the countries that those players are representing. I think it's it's pretty impressive. And I, I certainly think it's interesting that the number has increased and it's been diversified from 2018 to 2022. Yeah, I, I Joe, you, you made the point uh, that about 
like the United States, Canada not being at the last World Cup probably makes a pretty big difference yeah. in terms of the representation. But that said, I had a similar number. I think I had it high 30s, low 40s with around 11 national teams, more or less. And that didn't count Peru or New Zealand or Costa Rica. So it could definitely be more. I'm also with you that it seems like it will be the U.S. and Canada with a lot of players. Graham, did you have any surprising uh, entries on the list for teams that will have more MLS players than you would have thought of? Because there's one national team in particular that might have uh, quite a few going to the World Cup. Um, to be honest, there, there, there wasn't, but that doesn't mean there isn't. Who is your, who's your suggest, who's your suggestion for that? Ecuador. Yeah. Uh, okay. Who have, uh, Ariaga from Seattle, uh, Diego Palacios from LAFC, Jackson Mendez from Orlando, Alan Franco from Charlotte, Jose Cifuentes from LAFC, Michael Estrada from DC, and then you could have Leonardo Campagna and Jordi Alcivar uh, in there right. as well. Yeah. Lots of players in contention. Ecuador could potentially send as many, uh, as the United States, depending on how the rosters play out. So that one kind of yeah. blew my mind a little bit. I mean, I don't have I don't have the full list. I did this last night, and I got thirty eight from ten, and I didn't count the final intercontinental playoffs. So I, I, I think Joe Joe and I got exactly the same number because once I had in Peru, he had four from Peru. That brings him up to forty two. I don't actually have the list in front of me, but you're right. If that's how many Ecuador are bringing, then that is slightly surprising, particularly if that is the same as the US. But I also think that kind of reflects how MLS has uh, developed since mm-hmm. the certainly since the 2014 World Cup which is the record number 22 MLS players went to that World Cup that was that's still the record at the time uh, for sorry for the league it drops to 19 for 2018 due to America not qualifying i guess you could argue 19 without the US and Canada qualifying is actually maybe slightly more impressive than 22 with the US qualifying for 2014 but I think that reflects the fact that Ecuador could have so many MLS players at the World Cup it reflects kind of how the MLS clubs are looking to South America for a lot of their talent and that's where the money is going rather than going on aging European players it tends to be that that money is going to South American players and I will I will add Graham you make a good point about maybe the US and Canada equalizing this maybe it doesn't make it that impressive I think I, I disagree slightly. Just, I'm not saying that's what you actually think, but I, I think back in 2018, both Panama and Costa Rica had a pretty heavy dose of players. And so either way, you're looking at MLS's hold in CONCACAF, which was real back in 2018 and still is real now. Mexico also, I think, had a few more MLS players in it then than they likely will this time around. So I, I think that's totally fair, but I also think that the, the the spread of these players. I mean, we're looking at uh, guys that could potentially be playing for Poland. I mean, there's a, there's a few of those guys that could be involved. We're looking at players that could be involved with, uh, as I'm scrolling down through my list, Cameroon or Switzerland or Ghana or even Uruguay. I mean, teams that are are not ones that we necessarily associate with really high-quality international players playing in Major League Soccer. And then Ecuador, Taylor, you mentioned them, and we've talked about them already. MLS teams just absolutely raided that U20 yeah. uh, 2019 World yeah. Cup team for Ecuador. Cifuentes was on that team. Palacios was on that team. Uh, Jordi Alcivar was on the team. Campana was on that team. I- I'm missing others, but those are ones off the top of my head. So it, we are seeing things spread, and I, I'm very curious to see what 2026 will look like. I would be shocked. Of course, it's going to be more because there's going to be more teams at that World Cup. But I would be shocked even if you do it on a percentage basis. I think I think there'll be more MLS players involved then than there ever have been. 
Joe, final question on this one. When you were looking at Mexico's uh, most recent World Cup qualifying roster, did it cause you physical pain to see the names that were uh, associated with the Mexican national team that play in MLS? Because uh, I have it as David Ochoa, uh, Yul- uh, Juliana Rajo, and Efren Alvarez. Yeah, and eventually Hector Herrera, which they've already had for quite some time. True. But that's, I mean, we talked about this, what, last week about the dual national dynamics? Maybe that was a little bit longer ago, but those are players that we've referenced before as certainly being ones that Mexico have have earned that's a really poor way to phrase that those players are ones that have chosen to play for mexico ricardo pepe being one that's chosen the u.s i'm still curious to see what those tides and what that dynamic is going to look like going forward all right uh graham next question for you from nathan s no last name mysterious nathan s uh would mls get better tv ratings (laughs) would mls get better tv ratings if their games half a point to graham for echoing uh would mls get better tv ratings if their mls get better tv ratings if their games were scheduled do i get points for echoing (laughs) is that how this works you know what? Graham loses points because Joe echoed. Would MLS get better TV ratings if their games were scheduled differently? Saturday and Sunday or afternoons are busy for people with kids and many people who work inside all week like to spend that time outside. Just watch the games outside. It's solved. I find myself setting, uh, settling in Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, ready to watch some MLS, only to realize all of the games ended hours ago. I can't help but think this is a big part of their ratings issue. We should note MLS does have night games. Uh, I, I appreciate West Coast kickoff times for being able to watch games uh, at 10.30 at night uh, on the weekends, but maybe those aren't quite as like scheduled as they could be, Graham. Yeah, and, and TV is a big talking point in MLS at the moment because the league was expected to announce its new broadcast deal at the end of March. March came and went, still no announcement, and negotiations, I think, are still ongoing with a number of of parties. And uh, Nathan has, has kind of nailed one of the, the biggest issues with MLS as, as a TV product, it doesn't really have a consistent slot. So if I go through most soccer leagues around the world, they have a slot that you know games are going to be on. And so the Premier League, for instance, I know, I always know there's an early game on a Saturday and a 5.30 game. Obviously, I'm talking local time here. Um, I know the biggest games tend to be on a Sunday afternoon. In La Liga, the biggest games are late on a Sunday evening, always 8 o'clock kickoff, 9 o'clock local time. And in the Bundesliga, I know they play on Saturdays either at 2.30pm or 5.30pm will tend to be when they put the biggest matches on there. And MLS's TV schedule is kind of all over the place. Sunday nights, they tend to have games on Sunday nights, which is when I will often watch uh, MLS because there's nothing on here from after 10 o'clock at night here. And uh, that's when I'll watch games. But I sat down a couple of weeks ago to presumably watch an MLS game and there was nothing on. All the games had uh, had taken place and I was a little bit lost without an MLS game to watch. And I understand it's difficult because MLS can't exactly dictate to the broadcasters when they want to play. They're just not, in the US, they're not that strong. You know, they're not the Premier League. The Premier League can say to Sky when they want to play or the clubs can say to Sky when they want to play. And MLS maybe can't do that with the broadcasters and the state. They're not the the NFL at the moment. But that's why these uh, TV negotiations are so important because MLS needs to do a better job of getting the right slots. As a counterpoint, though, MLS has the youngest audience of any soccer league anywhere in the world and the youngest of any major sports league in, in America. And their schedule needs to be tailored to those young fans. So Nathan says he struggles to watch because he has kids. That is me too. But maybe maybe we're not the target market. Joe, when when do you like to watch uh, MLS games as a resident young person on the show? I mean, I know you I know you plug yourself into the Matrix and absorb it all <laughs> at once, like Neo. 
but you know, hypothetically speaking, when 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 do you watch MLS games? I just want to be like you, Graham. That's all. That's all it is. That's all I'm trying to do on the weekends. I. So maybe I'm unique in this way. I think I am at least somewhat among people my age and in this slightly younger demographic. I don't enjoy staying up late. I'm not a night person. I'm not really a morning person either. I'm just I just like to sleep, I guess. So I I don't just enjoy a day person. Yeah, I'm a day person. I don't enjoy kickoffs and, and thankfully on the West Coast this doesn't happen past 7 p.m. So we don't we don't really get those, but I'd like to be done with a game by around nine, and then yeah, I can sort of do whatever I want until I decide to go to bed. But I, I do think this is. This is somewhat of an issue for MLS, but also, Taylor, to your initial point, there are games on, on most Saturday and Sunday evenings. But also, to Graham's point, I'm just echoing everyone's points. I'm not, not even fishing for actual Taylor points in this case. But I, th- I think you guys both make good arguments here. There are games then, but you're probably not going to know when they are. MLS doesn't have a real slot, and it feels like, even if we set the national TV games aside, although what that landscape's going to look like after this new TV deal is announced, I don't know. But for, for the last couple of years with ESPN+, Plus. Even the games on Saturday, the very first game, it could be at 10 a.m. West Coast time or, or Mountain Standard time, which is Arizona's time zone, or or most of Arizona's time zone, I should say. We have multiple. Ooh. Uh, it could be at 10 a.m. or it could be at, at 12. It could be at 10.30. It could be 12.30. It might not even start till 1. You just don't know. And so you have to be careful to check each week. You can't just sit down and say, oh, it's my weekend ritual. I'm going to watch a game, even if even if you're not watching 10 games a weekend. Oh, I'm going to watch my, my one game on Saturday and I'm, I'm going to sit down and watch the first one because that's what I like to do. You can't really do that. And I think establishing some sort of routine, whether that's on the weekends, whether that's expanding into a, a, maybe a non-traditional spot for MLS in the TV schedule, which could be a, a Friday evening or a Monday evening to do something different. That wouldn't be the worst thing. I'm just curious to see how all this is going to play out over the next couple of years as that new deal, whenever it's announced, starts to take effect couple things for me. First of all, as always, uh, when assigning points, negative five points to Arizona, just because. Uh, Joe, uh, a question <laughs> for you that is a, a bit more random, but I think makes sense. Uh, in Turkey, when you when you had the three big teams, maybe less of that this season, but you would usually, uh, to my mind, get like Besiktas playing on a Friday, Fenerbahce on a Saturday, Galatasaray on a Sunday. They knew, they knew those were the teams that people wanted to see that most of the country supported, so they would make sure that you could watch them over the course of the weekend you weren't sort of putting them all at competing times on a Saturday and then uh, basically that's the end of it my question for you is is this a like a a negative byproduct of parity that in a league where you don't want to say like these are our superstar teams even if there are teams that do get more favoritism do get a bit more coverage ultimately it's this kind of same salary budget. They're all meant to be sort of equal at the start of the season. So with that in mind, does that make it harder to have sort of advanced billing for L.A., New York, or whatever it might be? Because you sort of don't – if you're MLS, you you want there to be big teams that have this high profile that attract attention. Simultaneously, you know that if you're just billing your coverage around those big teams, the smaller teams aren't going to enjoy that and aren't going to benefit as a result. It is it is a little bit of an issue, Taylor. It's harder to do that in MLS. It's harder to pinpoint those juggernaut kind of teams because the difference, the distance between the top three or four teams in MLS is probably a little shorter than it is between the top four teams in England and the rest of that league. So that is a challenge. I will say MLS and, and its broadcasting or affiliates still do sort of try to do that. F- FS1 or Fox Almost every Sunday has either LAFC or the Galaxy or Seattle or Portland on national TV. That's been the cadence so far this season. I I think maybe every week but one, maybe two, it's been one of those four teams in a later game slot or maybe an afternoon slot 
on Sunday. And so most of the time, and I don't know if this will stay for the rest of the year, that has been the case. And maybe ESPN has a national TV game for some Eastern Conference team on, on Saturday. But it's not predictable. And, and either way, I think the biggest hurdle for MLS or one of the biggest hurdles for MLS right now in terms of their TV ratings, even bigger than maybe not having games, enough games late in the evening, although I'm not so sure that's an issue, or, or maybe even bigger than Graham's idea about they don't have a, a schedule and a specific time that everyone knows about. I, th- I just don't think there's enough talent in the league right now to convince people that this is the soccer they should be watching. There's so much soccer to be watched right now. You, in the U.S., you can watch more soccer now than ever before, and that's awesome. But a lot of folks need to be convinced that they should be watching an inferior product on TV when they could watch a Premier League game on Saturday morning and another one on Sunday and call it good. Or they could watch a Premier League game and then a Bundesliga game on ESPN+. ESPN Plus and call it good, and then follow it up with Barcelona-Real Madrid on Sunday. It's hard to convince people that that's the soccer they want to watch, that, that, that MLS is the soccer they want to watch, because it's not as good. It just isn't as good. And I say this as someone who, who really does enjoy watching and talking about MLS. It's just not there yet. And until there's a higher level and, and the broadcast quality improves and, and there's more money in and around the game and there's better players on the field, I think it's going to be difficult, not impossible, but difficult for MLS to make any real major progress in their TV ratings. TV certainly feels like the final sort of frontier for, for MLS as a product. They've done, as I think, better than anyone expected in terms of the in-person experience in stadiums, but TV has been a struggle for them. And Joe, I agree with everything you say there about basically people, US soccer fans, American soccer fans, want to watch Premier League games primarily over MLS because the quality is higher. But then I'm thinking about my own country, Scotland, where... Uh, the teams here on TV still get good ratings and obviously mm. the quality of Premier League games in, uh, is much higher than Scottish Premiership games but we we still manage to get decent audiences I, I don't know I'm not coming up with a solution here I'm just airing well, my own thoughts aloud I don't know how Scotland has managed to get to that point but MLS is struggling well I mean Graham correct me if I'm wrong but the cultural ties to soccer in Scotland are are far deeper than to soccer in the US sure. right there is soccer culture here but MLS almost has to to make up for. They have to to really over adjust because they don't have that quality and they don't have that that soccer quality culture that reigns so heavily and, and really is important in a lot of different European countries and areas, Scotland included. So I, I think, and this goes back to the quality of the of the product on the field. MLS can't rely on on you know multiple generations gathering around to watch soccer on TV because that's what's always been done. Because that's not what's always been done. So they have to do something to adjust for that. And I think, you know, getting better players and, and trying to compete more with other leagues around the world in terms of your on-field quality is most likely the quickest way that MLS can try to bridge that gap. Graham, if if uh, if Andy Robertson leaves Liverpool and goes to an MLS team, where do you want him to go? Who is the team that's going to pull your attention the most? Well, I mean, Sky Sports in the UK only show Inter Miami, Miami, LA Galaxy, (laughs) and LAFC. So it's going to have to be one of those three. And I don't want him to suffer at Inter Miami. So one of the, one of the LA teams. Is he going to be okay in any of those conditions? Because I feel like Scotland and Liverpool, not quite the same climate as Miami and Los Angeles. (laughs) <laughs> that's true but i mean uh you know johnny russell seems to yeah, he's be right. doing okay he, <laughs> all right he hasn't burnt yet i don't yet, think yet that's the key phrase there uh, all right well thank you both for that one we'll be back with two more questions in just a moment first one more break this episode is supported by fx's welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We are back. Joe, Jake Schroeder is coming for you, my friend. After approximately one quarter of the MLS season, <laughs> Austin FC currently sit below only LAFC in the Supporter Shield race, uh, have the top score in the league, have a player tied for first in assists. Having downplayed Austin's quality previously, is it time for Joe to admit that Austin is more than a mediocre team with a good coach? I, Joe, I feel like you admit it. You would not have said <laughs> mediocre team with a good coach, but maybe you did. Graham would like you to admit it. Uh, Jake would like you to admit it. I am okay if you admit it. I leave I want it you to you to decide. I want you to look at the table, Joe. Read it and weep. <laughs> weep then. <laughs> oh, I think you and Jake both want that, Graham. So, so you're not alone there. Uh, Austin are a good team right now. That's pretty clear. And Jake lays out a bunch of the reasons why that's the case and a bunch of the evidence. Nine games played, six wins, two draws, one loss. They have the second most points in the West. And as Jake says, they're only behind LAFC in the Shield race. That's great. They are a good team and they've played pretty well, all things considered, so far this season. It's also true that they've played FC Cincinnati, Inter-Miami, San Jose, DC United, <laughs> Vancouver, Houston, a Seattle team that struggled in MLS play because they're trying to win CCL, Minnesota, and Portland. Those, those last ones I'll give you some leeway on. Those, those unlike Austin, are, are just not very good teams. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's still too early to make any really wide, grand judgments about Austin. They've done well, and they've done a good enough job to start this season to give themselves some cushion later on and really make a push for the playoffs. I would be surprised if they didn't make the playoffs at this point after how well they've generally taken care of business so far this season. Those are all good things. And Austin is a team that has talent. They have good pieces. Sebastian Triussi is the goal scorer that Jake references. He's tied with Jesus Jimenez for, for goals with seven to lead the league right now. Alex Ringen and Danny Pereira make up a really nice midfield trio along with Triussi. That's a good group. That's a talented group that can help win you games. I don't think they're a complete team, and I don't think they're a finished team right now. But yeah, they, they they are a good team that's done good things so far this season. Whether or not that will continue over the next six weeks when they play the Galaxy, LAFC, Orlando, the Galaxy again, and Montreal, who are very, very good yeah. in Montreal, that's a different story. And, and maybe we can talk about this again then. Maybe Austin will still be second in the West. Maybe they'll be first in the West. Maybe they'll drop a little bit. I think things will even out over the course of this season, but I still think they'll make the playoffs, Jake. And that's a really good step for a second year team in MLS trying to build on last season, which was generally, I think, disappointing that, for Austin fans. That was going to be my point, Joe, is over the next couple months, we are going to find out what Austin are, are all about. As you say, they've got a, a series of difficult matches coming up. I think eight of the next 10 are against, I look through 
those 10 teams and they're I would class them as good teams eight out of the 10 seven out of 10 away from home as well so it's going to be a testing period for them but even if Austin aren't able to maintain their, their current form position they've come a long way since Absolutely. last season and I think Wolf is earning a reputation as one of the best modern coaches in MLS and so there's good reason to believe that the upward trajectory even if it even if it doesn't sustain this season I'm talking about the next next season or maybe the season after that yeah. there's good reason to believe that upward trajectory will continue and I am interested to find out what the ceiling is for Austin FC under Wolf because I am I am a big fan of his and I, I think he is sorry to repeat myself but I think he is earning himself quite a reputation in the league yeah don't J- really don't, appreciate- don't take your don't take your anger at Andrew Weeby out on me that's all I have to say anyway go ahead Taylor <laughs> Joe, I really liked you uh, deflecting criticism from one ba- fan base by dunking on multiple other ones. Uh, <laughs> that was good stuff. Since that question was sort of tailored for Joe, Graham, I'll just ask you, are there any teams that you would like to apologize to while we're on the topic? Uh, I feel like this is being set up for me to mention San Jose, but after no. I said that their team wasn't all that good and <laughs> their manager, I couldn't work out why he was still there. They've then had a terrible start to the season and their manager is now gone. So I, f- I feel like maybe it, my preview was accurate, but uh, yeah, sorry, San Jose. I d- d- don't take it personally. One uh, point. One point for you, here. Graham. You were right, Graham. Yep. One yep. point. Thank you. One point for uh, for the San Jose. A half point for demanding that Joe cry. Joe, one point to you for not crying, and a half point for dunking on uh, multiple fan bases. Oh, so g- yes. good stuff across the board there, fellow. Yes. G- good points earned. Uh, final question, Graham. We'll come to you for this one first. Comes from Tom B. Another mysterious one. Only the initial. Uh, what are some stats or metrics that are not currently calculated or published that you would like to see? I especially feel like there are a lack of stats that are discussed for defenders. The same way we discuss xg. XA and whatever the abbreviation for the goalkeeper XG stat <laughs> is. Uh, so, Graham, any stats that you would like to see uh, become more mainstream or slightly more mainstream, maybe? So, I think I think goalkeeper metrics are, are difficult for me, and we've I've I've encountered this when we've been doing our um, analysis of the USMNT talent pool. When it comes to goalkeepers, the, the the metrics are just either very different, and I'm not entirely sure what they're telling me, which is on me, I guess, or they're just non-existent. There doesn't seem to be a great deal of of metrics and i'm sure there there is some good deep data about goalkeeping but as i say it's not easily accessible and what is accessible seems to be very primitive so i would i would like a little bit more there there's also so much talk about intensity and high pressing in the game at the moment that i'd like to see more metrics around that so obviously we have pressures and successful pressures and pressures in certain areas of the pitch but that only measures the outcomes I guess and we have ground covered but that's quite an obtuse metric so I'd like to have access to data on off the ball intensity that goes beyond just speed and coverage and as I say that's such a huge part of the game now that it's mentioned in pretty much every analysis of every team and every coach so I'd like to have some more of that sort of data. Uh, Joe, our, our our resident stats guy, what about you? So, Graham, I think you get at it there really well and also address part of Tom's question about the defensive stats. There are a, a real lack. There is a real lack of defensive stats that give us insight into what players are doing in within a team while they're defending. We can measure a lot of stuff right now with event data that deals with what players are doing on the ball, and that extends to the defensive side of the game, when you look at tackles and pressures and interceptions and aerial duels and stuff like that, Grim, you mentioned a bunch of that stuff. What we don't have, at least in a publicly accessible area, is tracking data that can tell us a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm, I'm really excited for the next 10 years of soccer analytics because I think we're going to learn 
a ton more about the game and we're going to be a lot better at measuring it and quantifying what things are good, what things are helpful, what things are bad, what things are not helpful. To stick with the defending stuff, basically, you know, pitch control, how how defenders' movements, how a player's movement, not just a, a, someone in the back four or back five, but how a defensive player, when their team's not in possession, how their movement and how they shift to deny space, how valuable is that? And what kinds of defensive movements and what kinds of individual movements and also movements as a team within a press or within a low block, what kind of things are, are valuable and helpful and useful and, and bring goals and can bring goals to a team? Versus what kind of movements aren't good? What kind of pressing structures and, and movements aren't useful? I think those are things we can start to learn with tracking data as well as, you know, just getting beyond a lot of those very basic event data kinds of things that you mentioned, Graham. So that's that's part of it. There's also the attacking side that we can learn from off-ball movement and off-ball tracking data, I should say, tracking data. You can learn about how players' runs off the ball help create space and, and really start to, to learn how to quantify that in learn which players are adding value with their movement, which then can unlock a whole nother level for teams and their recruitment and, and their staffs trying to target players to bring them in and elevate their current on-field product. So that's something we can do. And, and the last thing I'll mention for this question is more body positioning data. So The Athletic had an article about this. John Muller wrote about goalkeeper body positioning data. And I think it got mentioned on Sky Sports at some point recently, which is pretty big on Twitter. Um, I think Jamie Carragher mentioned that, which is pretty cool. But getting more information and getting more body positioning data, both for goalkeepers, which is a logical place to start, and that's being done, but also then for outfield players, maybe learning how they receive between the lines and what kind of body positioning is most effective. I think there's a whole lot of analysis that can be done there. So off-ball movement, uh, giving us insight uh, and tracking data, doing a lot of that heavy lifting and people interpreting that. It's way smarter people than me doing doing that work. And then body positioning data, I think, are, are two of the main categories, especially that first tracking data one, though that will make an impact on stats over the next decade. And, and those are certainly things that I'd like to see. The question for you both, for me, because it's a thing that I still kind of struggle to get my head around. Uh, Joe, for you first, like what in your vision, what is the purpose of these stats? Is it to say like, actually, this guy is way better than you think he is? Is it to give us uh, to Graham's initial point that it should all be case by case, we shouldn't paint with too broad of a brush? Is it basically to give new insight into players that we think we might understand are either positively or negatively? Like, what do you think all of this data helps us do people who aren't the coaches who are evaluating these players, but people from an outside looking in? So you're talking about people like us that are outside of organizations, right? Not, yeah. not like mm -hmm. people on recruiting staffs, not people on coaching staffs. For me, and this is part of the reason why I enjoy stats, it, it helps me learn more about soccer and helps me learn more about players. You can look at data a lot easier than you can watch every single game out there, right? So for my job, it's very helpful to look at stats and, and be able to learn little bits of insights and then, and then go, uh, go peer through it against the film, right? To, to use both of those things. But you can cover way more ground with data and you can learn a lot more, at least at a surface level and eventually even deeper about players by by looking at FBREF or looking at American Soccer Analysis or looking at Second Spectrum or whatever resources you have. It's a great way for me to learn more about players, which then makes me more capable and I think better at doing my job. So it helps learn which players are maybe undervalued and which players coaches should be using more. Or mm -hmm. it helps me get excited about one play, about player X being traded from team A to team B. Because I look at all this data, maybe maybe trading is a bad example. A better example, a more relevant one, is Brandon Vasquez. So he's a guy who had some really good underlying numbers for Cincinnati, and even back when he was playing with Atlanta United, but just hadn't really been given a chance. And he started to get a chance last year, and then Pat Noonan comes in this year, and he really gives Brandon Vasquez a chance, and all of a sudden we're talking about him as a national team player. If you were looking at that data, 
you might have already had that inside track on Brandon Vasquez. So it, it helps you learn more about players, helps you learn more about teams. And for me, selfishly, it just makes my job and my life a whole lot easier. That's really interesting. Graham, is that about the same for you? Yeah, I think so. It just gives you a broader understanding of a player. I am always quite skeptical of anyone who is basing opinions solely off data, but equally on the, on the, on the flip side, I'm skeptical of anyone that is ignoring data entirely and only using the eye test. I think it's sensible to kind of combine the two. My, my strategy tends to be, I will watch a player first, draw my own conclusions, then kind of look to the data and see whether those conclusions are uh, pan out in the data or what can happen is my conclusions can be challenged by something I didn't expect to see in the data and then I'll go back to the player to the game tape or whether it's just watching a game live and look for something a little bit closer that the data has told me so as I say it just it just gives me a broader understanding of what players are good at and what they're bad at and what sort of players they are uh, again, I'm revealing my own ignorance, potentially. Graham, when you have that moment, when you think this team were so dominant, they had so many opportunities, they should have won this game 5-0. And then you look at the data and it's actually like, oh, they didn't have as many chances. The XG was super low. That's happened in, in games where I've discussed with Joe and Joe's been like, actually, and I'm just sort of like, yeah, but that doesn't matter. And I think that's sort of what happens with me is I will let my eyes sort of be the dominant force there as opposed to what the numbers are saying. How do you handle when you come across that sort of uh, difference between what you feel like you observed and what the data backs up? Just sulk. That's my reaction <laughs> to that. <laughs> so, Joe, I'm going to assume you rewatch everything uh, and decide then uh, probably gearing more towards the numbers, Graham sulks, and I just rage <laughs> quit. I'm glad that we've established our approaches pretty clearly there. I will, Negative Taylor, five points to me for that. Let me, add, let me add one more thing, if you don't mind. Mm. I think there's a big... There's a big discourse always around stats versus the eye test, right? Okay, I saw this, I attribute it this way, and that's how I think about things. But then the numbers mm -hmm. say this, and there's almost like this irreconcilable difference between those two things in, in a lot of people's minds. I don't think those things are that different. Taylor, you're talking about XG there. You didn't mention it. But imagine the whole team has a, a bunch of shots, and they have 20 shots in a game. And it feels like, man, they hit the post four times from outside the box. This is kind of what Nashville did the other day, right? You have a bunch of chances that end up being close to the goal on frame, but maybe they're they're really far away from the goal with the shots being taken. And there's things like that that maybe you don't initially account for. The stats do account for that. They see the same things you see. In a lot of cases, people are writing down what they see, and that's how stats are coded, right? That might change at some point, and it will change for things like tracking data. But for event data, a lot of that is just people writing stuff down. They're watching the same game that you are, and they're categorizing and then using math and, and some statistical models to really attribute what those different things are worth. So, you know, in, in a game where a team has 20 shots and 12 of them come from outside the box and the other eight of them come from really wide parts inside the box and still pretty far away, I don't, I don't think it's all that much of a stretch to realize, wow, they were close to scoring a goal, but do I really back my team to score five goals from all of those shots or, or would I prefer them get closer to the goal and get a bunch of tap-ins from inside the six-yard box? And maybe that's a better way they should be trying to score goals. And so maybe this wasn't that good of a game at all. I don't think the eye tests and stats are all that different, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I, I will never forgive whoever named expected goals, expected goals, because in my opinion, it's a bad name. And that has caused a lot of stress for people who try to explain, explain that no, it's not an alternative scoreline. It's a measure just like you would measure the number of shots. It's basically measuring the quality of those opportunities and those, those chats. So if we, uh, chances, sorry. So if we could, uh, rename expected goals, then I think that would be a good thing, to be honest. 
Speaking definitely for the audience and not at all for myself, Graham, so when the XG is like 4.2, that's not saying that the team should have scored four goals? Oh, that's an existential question. Not in, <laughs> not in my uh, eyes, no. I, th- I think that is a measure of the quality of the chances produced because a team all- is always going to over or underperform their yeah. expected goals. It's not going to be bang on every single time because that's just not how it works. If you call that... Uh, I don't know. I've not really thought of this through, but if you called that a uh, shot quality index or something like that, I, th- I almost feel like mm. that does a better job of describing what that is rather than expected goals. Because as I say, people take that as an alternative scoreline, which is not really meant to be. It's just meant to be another measure of telling you how the goals, eh, sorry, how the games went. And for years and years, we've had shots on target and shots on total. It's just another layer of that, of that sort of, it's just another metric on top of that. And people take it as something else and they get all all stressed about it. And I think it's just down to a bad name. Joe, if a team did hit their exact XG every single game for the course of the season, would that be the your favorite thing that had happened in a season? Like, I don't care which league it is. How exciting would that be for you if they did actually just hit it dead on every single game? I, I might be scared because I think there was some sort of sorcery at play. Because that's, <laughs> I, I think that's impossible. But even if that did happen, that would be mind blowing like you would have to just imagine like the chance yeah you you would have to have all all of the all the fans would be going wild about that it would it would be bizarre but i'm here for it taylor at the same time bang on our xg you'll (laughs) never sing that i i I, my final (laughs) that was good graham one point to graham uh Graham, uh, joe like who is is there a player or a team because we talk about they're overperforming, they're underperforming, they might come back, like they should come back, they should uh, return to the norm, whatever it might be. Uh, I am not a stats guy. Is there a player or a team that you can think of that defied that that sort of XG that did continue to overperform or underperform longer than expected? Real Madrid. Yeah, I mean, Real Madrid do that a lot. They're, they have a lot of really good players, but they're maybe not quite as good as, as their record indicates. An MLS example that quickly came to mind is New England. Last year, they, they set the MLS points record but based off of a lot of the underlying numbers, including expected goals, but also broader than that, they they were maybe more of a, like a 55 or a 53-point team than a 73-point team. And so they, they sustained it long enough to win the Shield, but then they, they don't do all that well in the playoffs. And this year, well, we're seeing what happens at that point. And, and the numbers are sort of coming back down to earth. The results are coming back down to earth to match what the um, underlying numbers said last year. The other way around with LAFC, they, they vastly underperformed their XG last year telling us that maybe they're a, a better team than, than a team that misses the playoffs, which is what happened. Bob Bradley goes away. Steve Torrendolo comes in, doesn't change all that much. John Thornton, on a tactical basis, I should say. John Thornton adds a, a few players and, and plugs a few holes. And lo and behold, it's a team playing a, a very Bob Bradley-esque 4-3-3 shape that's winning a lot of games and is the best team in MLS right now. So that's another huge reason why I think XG is useful because it tells us something about what might happen in the future. That's what it is supposed to do. Not tell us, wow, this team really, you know, fluffed it in this game because they, they didn't meet their XG and they're a bad team. That's not what it is at all. It's about giving us an idea of how teams create chances and, and, and eventually over a decent enough sample size predicting and giving us information on what might happen down the road to try to assign a quality level to a particular team. 
Well, that feels like a very good note to end on. Uh, Tom B., who is not Tom Bogart, I assume, because he didn't mention going down the shore. Uh, hopefully, we have answered that question, even if I hijacked it a little bit to ask a bunch of stats questions on my own. But we will have more Lister questions tomorrow when Ryan Bailey is back with us. Uh, maybe fewer ones specifically about MLS and the USMNT. Uh, but look forward to that one for now. More Wimbledon. <laughs> Wimbledon. Yeah, yeah, much more Wimbledon. <laughs> very few Wimbledon references on this episode. Uh, for now, Graham Ruffin, thank you very much for answering all the questions today and scoring multiple points did i win i think you did i think you ended with 6.5 to joe's 4.5 but joe uh one more point to you so now it's 6.5 to 5.5 for an excellent explanation of your understanding of stats and how you use them sorry wait i tuned out for like a half second at there as i was trying to clap into my mic did i did i win or not with that extra point did i just pull closer what you pulled closer Ah. but we can keep this a running tally it's 6.5 to 5.5 for now and what was the xg (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> listeners thank you so here. much for listening i'm going to overtalk both of my co-hosts and say <laughs> we will talk to you very soon there will be no more stats questions my head hurts and thanks so much for listening